0: Hi everyone. My name Otis Gray and you're listening to Sleepy. A podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep. I know you're in bed and I don't want to take up much of your time but I just want to let you know that Sleepy is still growing by the day and it's helping more and more people sleep. If the show works for you, I would much appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and you leave a rating and leave a book that you'd like to hear in one of the reviews. Leaving one of these reviews, it only takes a minute and it does wonders for helping the show get found by more sleepy people. Thanks. And just because I hope you're going to be asleep by the end of this, uh, the music that you're listening to is by my good friend James Levkowski, who's playing this on a instrument that he made himself and he just got married which I mentioned in the last episode, but now it's official. So congratulations again to Jenny and James. I'm recording again from uh, my home in Vermont. I'm going through a lot of changes in my life. They're good changes. They're tough changes, but they're good ones. And I've really found a lot of value in trying to simplify. Spending more time in the woods, spending more time alone, being quiet, um, Really buckling down and getting work done and getting better sleep, too. So simplicity has been a pretty big theme in my life recently. So tonight, I thought I'd run with that theme and read a book that's been sitting on our bookshelf in Vermont for years and I've never read. It's A Simple Heart by Gustave Flaubert. I really don't know anything about this book, but seeing it on the bookshelf, it's one of those titles and one of those visual things that sticks in your memory forever. And I came home this time and I saw it and it's something I've seen since I was a kid and just never knew anything about. So tonight, I'm going to read it to you. So lay your head back, fix your pillow just how you like it, slowly mount into your bed and close your eyes and let me read to you. century, Madame Aubaine's housemaid, Felicité, was the envy of all the good ladies of pont le For just one hundred francs a year, she did all the cooking and the housework. She started the darning, the washing, and the ironing. She could bridle a horse, keep the chickens well-fed, and churn the butter. What is more, she remained faithful to her mistress, who, it must be said, was not the easiest of people to get on with. Madame O'Bain had married a handsome but impecunious man who had died at the beginning of 1809, leaving her with two very young children and substantial debts. Upon his death, she sold her properties, with the exception of two farms, at Toques and Jafossi's, which between them provided her an income of no more than 5,000 francs in rent, and she moved out of her house in St. Malene to live in another, which was less costly to maintain, which had belonged to her family and which was situated behind the market. This house had a slate roof and stood between an alley and a narrow street leading down to the river. Inside, the floors were at different levels, making it very easy to trip up. A narrow hallway separated the kitchen from the living room in which Madame Aubain remained all day long, sitting in a wicker armchair close to the casemount window against the wainscoting, which was painted white. There stood a row of eight mahogany chairs. A barometer hung on the wall above an old piano, piled high with a pyramid-shaped assortment of packets and cardboard boxes. Two easy chairs, upholstered in tapestry, stood on the either side of the Louis Kean-style mantelpiece in yellow marble. The clock in the middle was designed to look like a Temple of Vesta, and the whole room smelled musty, due to the fact that the floor level was lower than the garden. On the first floor, there was Madame's Bedroom, a very large room, decorated with pale, flowery wallpaper, and containing a picture of Monsieur, dressed up in a fanciful attire that was fashionable at the time. This room led directly to a smaller bedroom, which housed two children's beds, each with the mattress removed. Next came the parlor, which was always kept locked and was full of furniture draped in dust sheets. Finally, there was a corridor leading to a study. Books and papers lay stacked on the shelves of a bookcase, which ran around three walls of the room and surrounded a large writing desk in dark wood. The two end panels of this bookcase were covered in line drawings, landscapes in gouache, and etchings by Audron, a reminder of better days and of more expensive tastes that were now a thing of the past. On the second floor was Felicite's bedroom, lit by a dormer window which looked out over the fields. Felicite always rose at first light to make sure she was in time for mass and then worked without break until the evening. As soon as dinner was finished, the crockery cleared away and the door firmly bolted. She would cover the log fire with ashes and go to sleep in front of the fireplace, holding her rosary in her hand. No one could have been more persistent when it came to haggling over prices. And as for cleanliness, the spotless state of her saucepans was the despair of all the other maids in Pont de She wasted nothing and ate slowly, gathering every crumb of her loaf from the table with her fingers, a twelve-pound loaf baked especially for her and which lasted her twenty days. In all weathers, she wore a printed kerchief, fastened behind with a pin a bonnet which completely covered her hair, gray stockings, a red skirt, and over her jacket a bibbed apron, like those worn by hospital nurses. Her face was thin and her voice was shrill. At 25, people took her to be old as 40. After her 50th birthday, it became impossible to say what age she was at all. She hardly ever spoke, and her upright stance and deliberate movements gave her the appearance of a woman made out of wood driven as if by clockwork. Like other girls, she had once fallen in love. Her father, a stonemason by trade, had been killed falling from some scaffolding. Following this, her mother died and her sisters went their separate ways. A farmer took her in, and even though she was still a very young girl, he would send her out to the fields to look after the cows. She was dressed in mere rags. She shivered with cold, and would lie flat on her stomach to drink water from ponds. She was regularly beaten for no reason at all, and was eventually turned out of the house for having stolen 30 sous, a theft of which she was quite innocent. She was taken on at another farm, where she looked after the poultry, and because she was well-liked by her employers, her friends were jealous of her. One evening in August, she was 18 at the time, she was taken to the village fete at Colville, She was instantly overcome, bewildered by the boisterous sounds of the fiddle music, the lamps in the trees, the array of brightly colored clothes, the gold crosses and the lace, all those people moving as one in time to the tune. She was standing on her own, shyly, when a young man, fairly well off to judge by his appearance, and who had been leaning against the shaft of a farm wagon, smoking his pipe, approached her and asked her to dance. He bought her a glass of cider, a cup of coffee, a cake, and a silk scarf, and, imagining that she understood his motive, offered to accompany her back home. As they were walking along the edge of a field of oats, he thrust her to the ground. She was terrified and began to scream. He ran off. One evening, a little later, she was walking along the road, leading to Beaumont, and was trying to get past a large hay wagon as it lumbered slowly along. As she was edging her way around the wheels, she recognized Theodore. He looked at her quite unabashed and said she could forgive his behavior of the other night. He had just had too much to drink. She did not know how to answer him and wanted to run away. He immediately began to talk about the harvest and various important people in the district and told her that his father had left Colville and bought a farm at colts which meant that they were now neighbors. Oh, are we, she said. He said that his parents wanted him to settle down, but that he was in no rush and preferred to wait until the right woman came along before he married. She lowered her eyes. He then asked her if she was thinking of marrying. She smiled and said that he was wrong to tease her. But I'm not teasing you, I swear, he said, and slipped his left arm around her waist. She walked on with his arm still around her, they were now walking more slowly. There was a gentle breeze. The stars were shining. The huge wagon load of hay swayed from side to side in front of them, and dust rose from the feet of the four horses as they plodded along. Then, without any word of command, the horses turned to the right. He kissed her once more, and she vanished into the darkness. The following week, Theodore persuaded her to go out with him on several other occasions. They would meet in a corner of some farmyard, behind a wall or beneath a solitary tree. Felicite was not naive like other young girls of her age. Working with the farm animals had taught her a great deal. However, her natural discretion and an intuitive sense of honor prevented her from giving in to Theodore's demands. Theodore found this resistance so frustrating that, In order to satisfy his passion, or maybe out of sheer simple-mindedness, he proposed to her. She was not sure whether to believe him or not, but he insisted that he was serious. He then announced something rather disturbing. A year ago, his parents had paid for someone else to do his military service, but he still might be called up at any time. The prospect of serving in the army terrified him. Felicite took this cowardice as a sign of his affection for her, and it made her love him all the more. She would slip out of the house at night to meet Theodore, who assailed her with his fears and entreaties. Eventually she declared that he would go to the prefecture himself and find out what the situation was. He would come back and tell Felicite the following Sunday between 11 o'clock and midnight. At the appointed time, Felicite ran to meet her lover, but instead of Theodore, it was one of his friends who stood waiting to meet her. He informed her that she would never see Theodore again. In order to make sure he could not be called up, he had married a wealthy old lady from Touquet by the name of Madame La Jose. Felicité's distress was unbounded. She threw herself to the ground, weeping and wailing. She implored God to come to her aid and lay moaning, all alone in the fields until daylight. Then she made her way back to the farm and announced that she had decided to leave. At the end of the month, having received her wages, she wrapped up her few belongings in a shawl and left for pont le Outside the inn, she spoke to a woman wearing a widow's hood, who, as it happened, was looking for a cook. The young girl knew precious little about cooking, but she seemed so willing and so ready to oblige that Madame Aubaine eventually said, Very well, you may work for me. A quarter of an hour later, Felicite was installed in her house. At first she lived in a constant state of trepidation as a result of the sort of house it was and the memory of Monsieur, which seemed to hover over everything. Paul and Virginie, one aged seven and the other barely four, seemed made of some precious material. She liked to give them piggyback rides and mortified them when Madame Aubin instructed her to not keep kissing them. Even so, she was happy. Her new surroundings were very pleasant, and her early unhappiness quickly faded. Every Thursday, a group of Madame Aubain's friends came to play Boston. Felicite would set out the cards and the foot warmers in readiness. The guests always arrived punctually at 8 and left as the clock struck 11. On Monday mornings, the second-hand dealer, who had a shop at the end of the lane, would spread his various bits and pieces of iron mongery out on the pavement. The town would be filled with the buzz of voices, with the sounds of horses neighing, lambs bleeding, pigs grunting and carts rattling through the streets. At about midday, just when the market was at its busiest, an old peasant would present himself on Madame Albain's front doorstep, a tall man with a hooked nose and with his hat perched on the back of his head. This was robelin a farmer of Gavasses. He would be followed shortly afterwards by Labard, the farmer from Toque, short, fat, and red in the face, wearing a gray jacket and leather gaiters complete with the spurs. They would both come bearing chickens or cheeses, which they hoped might persuade their landlady to buy, but Felicite was more than a match for their banter, and they always respected her for this. Madame Aubain also received sporadic visits from the Marquis de Germainville, an uncle of hers who had squandered his money in loose living, and who now lived at Falaise, on the last bit of property he could still call his own. He would always turn up at lunchtime with a loathsome little poodle, which left its muddy pop-marts all over the furniture. Despite his efforts to behave like a gentleman, raising his hat every time he mentioned his late father, Habit would soon get the better of him and he would pour himself a glass after glass and start yelling bawdy jokes. Felicité would politely show him the door. I think you've had enough for today, Monsieur de Grimanville. Do come and see us again soon. And she would close the door behind him. But she was always delighted to welcome Monsieur Baret, a retired solicitor, his white cravat and bald head, the flounces of his shirt front, and the generous cut of his brown frock coat, the special way he had of bending his arm when taking snuff. Indeed, everything about his person prompted in Felicité the sort of agitation we always feel in the presence of some great man. He looked after the management of Madame's properties and would shut himself away with her for hours on end in Monsieur's study. He lived in constant fear for his own reputation had an inordinate respect for the judiciary and claimed to know some Latin. Thinking that it would help the children to derive some enjoyment from their studies, he bought them an illustrated geography book. It depicted scenes from different parts of the world. Cannibals wearing feathered headdresses, a monkey abducting a young girl, a group of Bedouins in the desert, a whale being harpooned, and so on. Paul carefully explained all these pictures to Felicite. In fact, this was the only time anyone ever taught her how to read a book. The children received their lessons from Gayo, a rather pitiful character, who worked at the town hall, who was noted for his fine handwriting, and who used to sharpen his penknife on the sole of his shoe. Whenever the weather was fine, the whole family would get up early and spend the day at the farm at Geofsi's. The farmyard there was on a slope with a farmhouse in the middle, One could just see the sea, a little streak of grey in the distance. Felicite would take a few slices of cold meat from her basket, and they would eat in a room adjoining the dairy. This room was all that now remained of a country house which had fallen into ruin. The paper hung in strips from the walls and fluttered in the draft. Madame Albain sat with her head bowed, absorbed in her memories, the children hardly daring to speak. Off you go and play, she would say, and off they went. Paul would climb up into the barn, catch birds, play ducks and drakes on the pond, or bang the great farm barrels with a stick to make them boom like drums. Virginia would go and feed the rabbits and run off across the fields, gathering cornflowers, showing her dainty embroidered knickers as she ran. One evening in autumn, they were coming back through the fields. The moon, which was in its first quarter, lit up part of the sky and a mist drifted like a scarf over the windings of the river toque. A group of cattle lying in the middle of the field lazily watched them go by. When they came to the third field, a few of them got on their feet and stood in a circle in front of them. There's nothing to be frightened of, said Felicite, and humming a wistful little tune as she approached, she went up to the nearest of the animals and patted it on the back. It turned away, and the others did the same. But no sooner had they got through the next field when they heard a terrifying bellowing. It was a bull that had been hidden by the mist. It began to come towards the two women. Madame Aubaine wanted to run. No, no, we must not move too quickly, said Felicite. They walked more quickly, even so, and could hear the bull's loud breathing getting nearer behind them and the pounding of its hooves on the grass. They knew it was now galloping towards them, Felicite turned round to face it, grabbed clods of earth from the ground, and flung them to the bull's face. It lowered its muzzle, shook its horns, and began to shudder and bellow with rage. Madame Aubaine had now reached the edge of the field with the two children and was frantically trying to find a way to get over the hedge. Felicite was still steadily retreating before the bull, throwing lumps of turf in its eyes and calling out, Hurry up, hurry up. Madame Aubain got down into the ditch, pushing first Virginie and then Paul in front of her. She fell several times as she tried to climb the bank, and at last, by the dint of sheer determination, she succeeded. The bull had driven Felicite up against the gate and was blowing slaver into her face. A second later, and it would have gored her. In the nick of time, she managed to squeeze herself between two bars in the gate. The huge animal was taken completely by surprise and stopped in its track. People in pont le Vique talked about this adventure for years afterwards, but Felicité never boasted about it and hardly seemed to realize that she had done anything heroic. Virginia commanded all her attention. The frightening experience with the bull had affected her nerves and Monsieur Poupard, the doctor, recommended sea-bathing at Trovelle. In those days, very few people visited the resort. Madame Albain made inquiries, sought the advice of Bore, and made preparations as if for a long journey. The day before they left, the luggage was sent off in Leibard's farm wagon. The next day he returned with two horses. One of them had a woman's saddle with a velvet backrest, and the other had a cloak rolled up across its back as a makeshift seat. Madame Albain sat on this behind Leibard, Felicite looked after Virginie on the other horse, and Paul rode separately on Monsieur Lecetois' donkey, which had been lent on the clear understanding that they took great care of it. The road was so bad that the five-mile journey took them two hours. The horses sank up to their pasterns in the mud and lurched forward in order to pull themselves free. They lost their footing in the ruts and sometimes had to jump. At certain points on the road, Lebar's mare would suddenly stop dead. Lebar would wait patiently for her to move forward again. As they rode on, he would tell them stories about the people who lived along the way, always adding a few personal comments of his own for good measure. In the town center of Tokay, for instance, as they were passing alongside a house with nasturtiums growing round the windows, he said, with a shrug of his shoulders, There's a Madame Le Jose lives there, and rather than take a young man, Felicite did not hear the rest, for the horses had broken into a trot, and the donkey had run up ahead. They turned down a track, a gate swung open, two young farmhands appeared, and they all dismounted beside the manure heap, right outside the front door of the farmhouse. Old Madame Le greeted her mistress with effusive expressions of delight. For lunch she served a sirloin of beef, along with tripe, black pudding, A fricasse of chicken, sparkling cider, a fruit tart, and plums and brandy, all accompanied by a stream of compliments to madame, who seemed in much better health, to mademoiselle, who had grown up into such a fine-looking young woman, to monsieur Paul, who was such a strapping young man, not forgetting their dear departed grandparents, whom the Libards had known personally, having been in service to the family for several generations. The farm like the libards themselves, had an old-world feel to it. The beams in the ceiling were pitted with wormwood, the walls blackened with smoke, the window panes gray with dust. There was an oak dresser, cluttered with all manner of implements, jugs, plates, pewter bowls, wolf traps, shears for the sheep, and a huge syringe would particularly amuse the children. In the three yards outside, there was not a single tree which did not have mushrooms growing at its foot or clumps of mistletoe in its branches. Several had been blown down by the wind, but it had begun to grow again, where the trunk had been split, and all of them were bent beneath the weight of the apples. The thatched roofs looked like brown velvet of unequal thickness, and weathered the fiercest winds. But the shed for the carts was falling down. Madame Aubain said that she would arrange to have it repaired, and ask for the horses to be reharnessed, it took them another half hour to reach Travo. The little caravan had to dismount when they came to the Ecore, a cliff which jutted out over the boats below. Three minutes later, they had arrived at the end of the quay and turned into the courtyard of the Golden Lamb, an inn run by old Madame David. Virginie very quickly began to recover her strength as a result of the change of air and of the bathing in the sea. She did not have a bathing costume, and so went into the water wearing a chemise. Afterwards, her maid would help her to get dressed in a customs officer's hut that was also used by the bathers. In the afternoon, they would take the donkey and walk out beyond the roche Nair, towards Hennickville. At first, the path wound up between gently rolling meadows like a lawn in a park, and then came to a plateau where there were grazing pastures and plowed fields. The path was lined by holly bushes, which grew amongst the tangle of brambles, and here and there the branches of a large dead tree traced their zigzag patterns against the blue of the sky. There was one particular field, in which they usually stopped to rest themselves, looking down towards Deauville, to their left, La Le Havre, to their right, in front of them, the open sea. It lay shimmering in the sunshine, as smooth as the surface of a mirror, and so calm that they could barely hear the murmur of the waves. Sparrows twittered from everywhere nearby, and the great dome of the sky lay spread out above them. Madame Obain would sit with her needlework. Virginia would sit beside her, plaiting rushes. Felicite gathered bunches of wild lavender, and Paul, utterly bored, would always be itching to move on. At other times they would take the ferry across the toque and go looking for shells, at low tide, sea urchins, hormers, and jellyfish were left behind on the sand. The children would chase after their flecks of foam blown about in the breeze. The waves broke lazily on the sand from one end of the beach to the other. The beach stretched as far as the eye could see, but was bounded on the landward side by sand dunes which separated it from the marais, a broad meadow in the shape of a race course. As they walked back towards Trovo, which lay at the foot of the hill. The town appeared to grow bigger at every step they took. With its motley assortment of houses, it seemed to blossom like a flower garden in colorful disarray. When it was too hot, they kept to their room. The dazzling brightness outside cast bars of light through the slats and the window slides. When it was too hot, they kept to their room. The dazzling brightness outside cast bars of light through the slats in the window blinds. There was not a sound to be heard in the village. Not a soul ventured out into the streets. A prevailing quiet made everything seem all the more peaceful. From far away came the sound of a caulkers' hammers beating against the hull of the boat, and the smell of tar was wafted to them on the listless breeze. The most exciting event of the day was when the fishing boats came in. Once past the entrance buoys, they would begin to tack from side to side, their mainsails would be lowered to half-mast, and with their foresails swollen like a great balloon, they would come grinding through the splashing waves right into the middle of the harbor and suddenly drop anchor. The boat would then be brought alongside the quay. The sailors would hoist their fish ashore, still live and quivering. A line of carts was ready waiting, and women in cotton bonnets rushed forward to take the baskets and to kiss their menfolk. One day, one of these women came up to Felicite. A moment or two later, Felicite was back in the room at the inn, beside herself with excitement. She had found one of her lost sisters, and into the room walked not to see Beret, now Leroux, with the baby at her breast, another child holding her right hand, and on her left, a little ship's boy with his hands on his hips and his beret over one ear. After a quarter of an hour, Madame Aubain asked her to leave, but after that... There was no getting away from them. They would wait just outside the kitchen or follow them when they went for walks. The husband always kept well out of sight. Felicite became very attached to them. She bought them a blanket, some shirts, and a cooking stove. They were obviously out to take advantage of her. Madame Albain was annoyed that Felicite was not more firm with them. She also took objection to the familiar way in which the nephew spoke to Paul. So, because Virginie had developed a cough and the weather had taken a turn for the worse, she returned to pointe le Monsieur Beret offered his advice on choosing a good school for Paul. The one at Cayenne was generally considered to be the best, so Paul was sent away to Cayenne. He said his goodbyes bravely, really quite pleased that he was going to go live somewhere where he would have some friends of his own. Madame Aubain resigned herself her son going away, knowing that he must have a good education. Virginie quickly got used to being on her own, but Felicite found the house very quiet without him. Soon, she had something else to occupy her mind. From Christmas onwards, she had to take Virginie to catechism every day. Genuflecting as she went through the door, Felicite walked up to the aisle beneath the high ceiling at the nave, opened the door of Madame Aubain's pew, sat herself down and looked all around her. The children were seated in the choir stalls, the boys on the right and the girls on the left. The priest stood in front of them beside the lectern. One of the stained glass windows in the apse showed the Holy Spirit looking down on the Virgin Mary. In another, the Virgin knelt before the infant Jesus, and behind the tabernacle there was a carving in wood representing St. Michael slaying the dragon. The priest began with a summary of the old scriptures. Felicite's mind was filled with the images of paradise, the flood, the Tower of Babel, cities consumed by flames, people dying, and idols cast down. This dazzling recital of events instilled in her a wholesome respect for the Almighty and a profound fear of his wrath. She wept at the story of Christ's passion. Why had they crucified a man who was so kind to children? fed the hungry, gave sight to the blind, and who had chosen out of his own gentle nature to be born amongst the poor on the rough straw of the stable. Seed time and harvest, the fruits of the vine, all those familiar things mentioned in the Gospels had their place in her life too. They now seemed sanctified by contact with God. Felicite loved lambs all the more because of her love for the Lamb of God and doves now reminded her of the Holy Spirit. She found it difficult to imagine what the Holy Spirit actually looked like, because he was not only a bird but sometimes a fire and sometimes a breath. Perhaps it was the light of the Holy Spirit that she would see at night time, flickering at the edge of the marshes, or his breath which drove the clouds across the sky, or his voice which made the church bells ring so beautifully. She sat wrapped in adoration of these wonders, delighting in the coolness of the stone walls and the peacefulness of the church. Of church dogma, she understood not a word and did not even attempt to understand it. As the curé stood explaining it to all the children and the children repeated what they had learned, Felicite would drop off to sleep to be woken suddenly by a clatter of wooden shoes on the stone floor as the children left the church. And so Felicite came to learn her catechism by dint of hearing the children recite it, for her own religious education had been neglected when she was young. From then on, she copied the religious observances of Virginie, fasting when she fasted and going to confession whenever she did. For the feast of Corpus Christi, Felicite and Virginie made an altar of repose together. For days beforehand, Felicite fretted over the preparations of Virginie's first communion. She worried about her shoes, her rosary, her missal, and her gloves. Her hands trembled as she helped Madame O'Bain to dress her. All through the mass, she was on Tender Oaks. One half of the choir stalls was hidden from her sight by Monsieur Beret, but straight in front of her, she could see the flock of young girls, all wearing white crowns over their lowered veils. looking like a field of snow even from a distance she could recognize her beloved little Virginie by the delicate line of her neck and her attitude of reverent contemplation the bell tinkled they all bowed their heads and knelt in silence then with a mighty flourish from the organ the choir and the congregation sang the Angus Die. after the boys had processed forwards the girls stood up with their hands joined in prayer, they moved slowly towards the candlelit altar, knelt at the altar step, received the host one by one and returned in the same order to their place in the choir stalls. When it came to Virginie's turn, Felicite leant further forwards so that she could see her, and with that singular imagination that is born out of true love, she felt she was herself Virginie, assuming her expression, wearing her dress and with her heart beating inside her breast. As Virginia opened her mouth, Felicite closed her eyes and almost fainted. The next morning, bright and early, Felicite went to the sacristy and asked to be given communion. She received it with due reverence, but did not experience the same rapture. Madame Albain wanted the best possible education for her daughter. Because Guyot was unable to teach her either English or music, she resolved to send her to the Ursuline Convent School in Honfleur. Virginie had no objection to this plan, but Felicite was most unhappy and felt that Madame was being too strict. However, she came to accept that it was not really for her to decide and that her mistress probably knew best. Then one day, an old carriage drew up outside the door. Out of it got a nun who had to collect Mademoiselle. Felicite loaded the luggage up on the rack, issued some parting instructions to the driver, and put six pots of jam, a dozen pears, and a bunch of violets in the boot. Just as they were about to leave, Virginie burst into tears. She clung to her mother, who kissed her on the forehead, and kept telling her, Come, come, we must be brave. The step was pulled up, and the carriage drove away. When it had gone, Madame Obain broke down. and that evening, all of her friends, Monsieur and Madame Lormeau, Madame Le Chaptois, and two Rochefort sisters, Monsieur de Hoefel and Bure, came round to comfort her. At first, the loss of her daughter left her feeling very sad, but she received letters from her on three days each week, and on the other day she wrote back to her, walked in her garden, read a little, and so managed to occupy her time. Every morning out of habit, Felicite would go into Virginie's bedroom and gaze at the walls, she missed being able to comb her hair for her, tie her boot laces and tuck her up into bed. She missed seeing her sweet little face, always beside her and holding her hand when they went out for walks. For want of something to do, she tried to take up lace work, but she was too clumsy with her fingers and she kept breaking in threads. She could not put her mind to anything and she was losing sleep. She was, in her own words, all empty inside. In order to provide herself with a bit of company, she asked Madame Obain if her nephew Victor might be allowed to come visit her. He would always arrive on Sundays, just after mass, rosy-cheeked, his shirt unbuttoned and bringing with him the smells of the countryside through which he had traveled. She straightaway laid the table for him. They would eat lunch sitting opposite each other, Felicite taking care to eat as little as possible, as a save on expense and giving Victor so much to eat that he ended up falling asleep. As the first bell for Vespers began to ring, she would wake him up, give his trousers a good brush, tie his tie, and make her way to church, leaning on his arm like a proud mother. His parents always told him to make sure he brought something back with him, a bag of sugar, a piece of soap, a little brandy, or even money. He brought with him any of his clothes that needed mending, and Felicite always did the work willingly, glad of any opportunity of encouraging him to visit her again. In August, Victor went to join his father on the sea trips along the coast. It was the beginning of the school holidays, and it was some consolation to Felicite to have the children back at home. But Paul had become rather temperamental, and Virginia was now too grown up to be treated as a little child which created a sense of awkwardness and distance between them. Victor's travels took them to Morlaix, to Dunkirk, and to Brighton, and after each trip, he brought back a present to Felicite. The first was a little box made out of shells, the second was a coffee cup, and the third a big gingerbread man. He was growing into a handsome young man, with a fine figure, the first signs of a mustache, a frank and open expression, and a little leather cap, which he wore perched on the back of his head like a sea pilot. He would entertain Felicite by telling her stories laced with all sorts of nautical jargon. One Monday, the 14th of July, 1819, it was a date that Felicite would never forget. Victor announced that he had been signed on to the crew of an ocean-going ship, and that in two days' time he would be taking the night ferry from Honfleur to join his schooner which was due shortly to set sail from La Havre. He might be away for two years. The prospect of such a long separation left Felicite, feeling very saddened. In order to say one final farewell to him, on the Wednesday evening, after Madame had finished her dinner, she put on her clogs and she ran ten miles from Pont-le-Vicay to Honfleur. When she came to the cavalry, instead of turning left, she turned right, got lost in the shipyards, and had to retrace her steps. She asked directions from some passers-by, who told her she would have to hurry. She walked all the way around the harbor, which was full of boats, getting caught up in the moorings as she went. Suddenly, the ground seemed to fall away beneath her. Beams of light crisscrossed before her eyes, and she thought she must be losing her senses when she saw some horses in the sky overhead. On the quay side, more horses were neighing, Frightened by the sea, they were being hoisted into the air by a derrick and lowered into a boat which already crammed with the passengers trying to squeeze their way between barrels of cider, baskets of cheese, and sacks of grain. Hens were cackling and the captain was swearing. One of the deck hands, apparently oblivious to everything around him, stood leaning against the cathead. Felicity had not recognized him and was calling out, Victor, again and again. He looked up and rushed forward, but just at that moment, the gangway was suddenly pulled ashore. The boat moved out of the harbor, hauled along by a group of women who sung in chorus as they went about their work. Its ribs creaked and heavy waves lashed its bows. The sails swung round and hid everyone from view. The surface of the sea shone like silver in the moonlight, and on it the ship appeared as a black spot, growing paler as it moved away. Eventually, it was swallowed up in the distance and vanished from sight. Returning home, Felicite passed by the cavalry and was taken by a sudden desire to commend to God's mercy all that she held dear. She stood there praying for a long time, with tears running down her cheeks and her eyes fixed on the clouds above. The town was fast asleep. The only people about were the customs men. Water could be heard gushing through the holes in the locked gate. Like a running torrent, a clock struck two. The convent would not be open to visitors before daybreak, and Felicite knew that. If she arrived back late, Madame was sure to be annoyed. So, although she would have loved just one small kiss from Virginie, she set off back home. The maids at the inn were just walking up as she walked into Point Levacay. So poor little Victor was to spend months on end being tossed around in the waves. His previous trips at sea had not bothered her. England and Brittany were places one came back from, but America, the colonies, and the Antilles were lost in some unknown region on the other side of the world. From the day he left, Felicite could not stop thinking about her nephew. When it was hot and sunny, she worried that he might be thirsty, and when there was a storm, she feared he might be struck by lightning. As she listened to the wind, Howling in the chimney and blowing slates off the roof, she pictured him buffeted by the same storm, clinging to the top of a broken mast and being flung backwards into a sheet of foam. At other times, prompted by her recollection of the pictures and the geography book, she imagined him being eaten by savages, captured by monkeys in a forest or dying on some deserted beach. But she never spoke about these worries to anybody. Madame Aubin had worries of her own about her daughter. The sisters at the convent said that she was an affectionate child, but oversensitive. The slightest emotion unsettled her, and she had to give up playing the piano. Her mother insisted that she wrote home regularly. One morning, when the postman had failed to appear, she could scarcely contain her impatience and kept pacing backwards and forwards in her room between her armchair and the window. This really was extraordinary. No news for four days. Thinking that her own situation might serve as some comfort to her mistress, Felicite ventured. But madame, I haven't received any news for six months. News from whom? Why, news from my nephew, Felicite gently replied. Oh, your nephew. And with a shrug of her shoulders, Madame Aubaine began pacing about the room again, as if to say, I hadn't given him a thought. And in any case, he's no concern of mine. A mere ship's boy, a scrounger. He's not worth bothering about. But someone like my daughter. Really. Although Felicite had been fed such rough treatment since she was a child, she felt very offended by Madame Aubain. But she soon got over it. After all, it was to be expected that Madame should get very upset about her own daughter. For Felicite, the two children were of equal importance. They were bound together by her love for them, and it seemed right that she had to share the same fate. Felicite learned from the chemist that Victor's ship had arrived in Havana. He had read the announcement in the newspaper. Because of its association with cigars, Felicite imagined Havana to be a place which the only thing people did was smoke, and she pictured Victor walking amongst crowds of Negroes in a cloud of tobacco smoke. Was it possible to return from Havana by land? If need be, how far was it from Pont-le-Vicay? In order to find out, she went to consult Monsieur Beret. He reached for his atlas and launched into a disquisition on lines of longitude. Felicité was utterly bewildered. Beret sat in front of her, beaming smugly to himself, like the know-all he was. Eventually he picked up his pencil and pointed to an almost invisible black dot. "'and one of the little indentations "'in the contour of the oval-shaped patch on the map. "'Here it is,' he said. "'Felicite peered closely at the map. "'The network of colored lines was a strain on her eyes, "'but it told her nothing. "'Beret asked her what was puzzling her, "'and she asked him if he would show her "'the house in which Victor was living. "'Beret raised his arms in his chair, "'sneezed and roared with laughter.' "'delighted to come across someone so simple-minded. "'Felicite, whose understanding was so limited "'that she probably even expected to see a picture of her nephew, "'could not understand what he found so funny. "'It was a fortnight after this, "'as usual time on market day, "'that Lee Bird came into the kitchen and handed Felicite a letter "'which he had received from her brother-in-law. "'As neither of them could read, "'Felicite showed the letter to her mistress.' Madame Albain, who was counting the stitches on a piece of knitting, put her work into one side, opened the letter, gave a sudden start, and then, lowering her voice and looking very serious, she said, They are sending you. Bad news. Your nephew. Victor was dead. That was all the letter said. Felicite sank down into the chair and leant her head against the wall. Her eyelids closed and suddenly flushed pink. She remained there, her head bowed, her hands hanging limply at her side, staring in front of her and repeating over and over again, The poor boy, the poor boy. Leibard stood looking at her and sighing. Madame Aubain was shaking slightly. She suggested that Felicite go and see her sister at Truville. Felicite gave a wave of her hand to indicate that it was not necessary. There was a silence. Old Leibard thought it best to leave. When he had gone, Felicite said, It doesn't matter a bit. Not to them it doesn't. She lowered her head again and sat there, now and then, toying distractedly with her knitting needles that lay on the work table. A group of women passed by the yard, wheeling a barrel load full of dripping linen. Felicite caught sight of them through the window and suddenly remembered that she had washing to do herself. She had passed the lie through it the day before, today it needed rinsing. She got up and left the room. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.